Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's sermon. When they're trying to figure out life, when they're trying to figure out meaning and purpose or whatever your journey you have them on, I, I'm praying that this journey we go on through the book of Ecclesiastes will begin to maybe bring comfort, answer some questions, give some direction, give some purpose, maybe even expose to who God is. So we pray for this journey we're going to go on in the next few months that you bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look at three things this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the introduction of this book. I have to lay some introduction down in order to get the context to everything. It's important that you have introductions. We know that introductions are important, right? First impressions can make or break a deal. And at first glance, the author appears skeptical, depressed, and without hope. And the first six chapters are his negative experiences about life. That's why he writes in verse 3, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What he's saying is, what is the gain in this life? And as you read this book, you might can easily conclude he's a man without hope, without purpose, and seeking purpose. But we see a little hope in his message as you journey through it. And you read that in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, chapter 12, verse 9. It says, the preacher was wise. He still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many Proverbs. See, the first six chapters just seem like it's all about his journey. It's actually, it looks pretty depressing. It looks pretty sad about his stuff he invested in. But the last six chapters are his reflection and conclusion. And the book moves from a self-centered perspective to a God-centered perspective to a gospel-centered perspective. And so he gives us a little ray of hope throughout this book as he's beginning to unveil his own life experiences. So let's jump into the introduction of this book, right? Because it's important to understand the introduction. Let's just look at the title, Ecclesiastes. That's the title of this book. It's actually the Hebrew word, koholith, which means preacher. It means spokesman. It means speaker. One who speaks in assembly. Actually, this, this Hebrew word is similar to the Greek word ekklesia, which we get the word church or assembly or gathering. This is the ekklesia. This is the gathering of God's people. This is the, the church. That's the, the title of the book, right? This book is included in the canon, which means it's considered inspired, written for our learning, that we might have hope. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 10, 11 says, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. The words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Hmm. I love the phrase here. If you look at those two verses, the words of truth. One shepherd, upright. I can only imagine that God is true. We have one shepherd. Right? He's, he's beginning to expose the hope, pointing back to the gospel. Pointing, his hope is coming out of the darkness because his word is true. And Peter reminds us that the scriptures are written by men, moved by the Holy Spirit, and this book is included as an inspired work. It's a journal. Some seen it as a journal, one man's journey or his diary. He gives, 
intimate insight into his life and his journey. And he, and he was very vulnerable. He's very honest. He was, he was an open book. He wore his emotions on his sleeve, the good, the bad, and the ugly in this. So that's what I love about this book. He doesn't hold anything back. So easy for us to hide behind our own mess. Come on, come on. But Solomon doesn't do that. He says, this is who I journey. This is who I am. It's actually a sermon. You could actually read this book in about 45 minutes, about a 45-minute sermon. So that gives me hope that as I preach 45 to 50 minutes, I, I align with Solomon, right? And you could read this book in about that. It's his manuscript. It's his notes. And this book covers the issues of the day. This, I think this book is prime for today. In fact, some consider this book the Mars Hills of the Old Testament because he tells about how people turn from God and begin to follow their own pleasures and their own idols and that we have to turn back to the true God. When it's all said and done, he brings God back into the plan and God back into the picture. In fact, some people call this book the black sheep of the scriptures. It's the, the joker in the deck. It's the, the wild card and God's playing it now through Solomon, through the author. So we see this introduction of the book. Let me introduce you to the preacher because you have the assembly, you have this book, but I want to introduce you to the preacher. Let's discover his identity of the preacher, right? In fact, the word preacher, koholeth, which I said, is mentioned 29 times in this book. Nowhere does the author of the book actually reveal himself, but he's given us some clues. This book is like the Gospel of John, and when we, we just finished the Gospel of John, he's the author, but nowhere does he give his name. He's known as the Beloved, but we have clues about who that author is, and we're going to discover here this morning there are clues to who the author is, who the preacher is, who the koholeth is. We know him as the son of David, the king of Jerusalem in verse 1-1. One, one. The king over Israel in all Jerusalem, verse 12. In verse 16, it says, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom or surpassing wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. In fact, it says in Ecclesiastes 12, I have also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and the provinces. Because the preacher was wise and said in order many proverbs. These references can only be attributed to King Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba. And Solomon is the only one that fits these descriptions. So we believe that Solomon is the author of this book. So now that we know the author, we have to know the audience. Who is he speaking to, right? He's speaking to the emerging leaders of his day. In fact, Solomon is speaking to the individuals of influence. Remember, Solomon was a king, and he had the ear of leaders of the known world. Those who had power in government, education, and the arts, and all these different things. That they would travel all around. We know that Queen of Sheba would come, and we know that people would come to hear his wisdom. But I love this. He's speaking to the aristocrats, the influencers, those who influence education. But who is that crowd that he's speaking to? Who is in that room, in that hall, in the assembly that he's speaking to? The agnostics, the atheists, the humanists, the hedonists, the universalists, Jews, and Gentile. He speaks to the trend makers of the college, the, the young and the old. This is his audience by which he's presenting this sermon, this 45-minute sermon that's going to take us about six months to get through. <laughs> so we can break it down a little bit. Solomon is addressing this assembly. He, he's sharing his life experiences 
with these people. He, he shares about his past. He's given his testimony, his failures, his efforts, his accomplishments, and sums it all up as vanity. He introduces God into the picture as Elohim to the assembly. In fact, he mentions the word God 42 times in 36 verses in this book. Yet Solomon is keeping the level of the introduction of God at a simple introduction. Because the people of faith know God as Yahweh or Jehovah, and the world knows him as Elohim. For Elohim, the Hebrew name for God is God in general. But Yahweh is Jehovah God on a personal level. You might say, do you believe in God? And people say, yes. But do you believe that Jesus is God? That's a different thing. Some people know God in the general sense, but they don't know God in the biblical sense. And so Solomon, the writer, is saying, I'm going to introduce you to this God because it's like Mars Hill. Let me talk about this unknown God. He's bringing it that way. Let me tell you something. As I think of Solomon and who he's speaking to, we need the koholists of our day. We need the preachers of our day. We need the prophets of our day to speak the truth. Each of you are the koholith. You're the preachers. You proclaim the gospel to a fallen culture. Some, you're, you, there are some today that are preaching another gospel and calling it good news when it's really bad news. Pastor Franklin and I were at the World Cup yesterday when the Mormons showed up. <laughs> and we sat and discussed the gospel with them for an hour over there because the Jesus that they believe is not the Jesus of the scriptures that we believe. Their gospel is a different gospel than the gospel we believe. So we need the, the Kohelis, right? We, we live in a culture who's pursuing pleasure and power and prestige and palaces. A culture who's trying to find happiness, success, peace apart from God. This is our audience today. A culture that compromises to gain capital. A culture that's futile in their thinking in order to gain fame. A culture that is buried in depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideations because it's lost its identity who they were created to be. A culture has lost its moral compass for the sake of pleasure and prosperity. A culture that is being paganized and not evangelized. A culture that needs the hope of the gospel. A gospel that came to set the people free. We need Kohelis. We need preachers. Solomon and story. Solomon shared that he drank from the same well of pleasure. He sat at the banquet hall of fame and fortune means he went to the clubs and he concluded he was still hungry and thirsty. <laughs> I think many are still hungry and thirsty and they need the bread of life and the living water. That's just the induction of the, the book, the author, the audience. Let's look at the introduction of the words of the preacher. There was this young preacher, young in the ministry, young in age, and he, he decided to do a sermon on parenting. In, and he, he titled parenting, his sermon title was 10 Commandments of Confident Parenting. And so he preached it, and the parents came up and said to him as the young preacher, listen, parenting isn't a cookie-cutter thing. So the young pastor changed the title of his sermon, and he called it 10 Suggestions of Parenting. And he preached it again. But after he got married and had kids of his own, he changed the title of that to 10 Hopes and Dreams of Struggling Parents. <laughs> 
He had the experience of life behind him. He had done some time behind him, and so now he can talk about what it meant to really be parenting. When you get into the words of Solomon, when you get into the book of Solomon, it's not a man who's early in his age when he's writing this book, is actually older in the twilight of his years. He's put some time in. He's got some years in. He's got some miles into his life. He's got some experiences. He's, he's been there and done that. He's been around a little bit or been around the block a little bit. Many of you know, I just turned 60 this few weeks ago and, and I've been in the, I've been in the, I've been in the ministry for over 40 years serving Jesus. My early days was all about striving and doing, but not having the experiences. But I realized in my latter part is slow down. God's got this. I've got some miles under me a little bit in this, in this ministry. I got some miles and some things. And I think Solomon has the same thing. He's got some miles under him in life. Yet the wisest man still made some foolish decisions. <laughs> and we're going to see that in his writings here this morning. Solomon was qualified to speak on life matters, right? On life issues. Because life was not a theory. It was an experience for him. He lived it, and now he's writing about it. We know that Solomon authored three books in the Old Testament, each written at different times and periods in his life. The first one was Song of Solomon, right? Or Song of Songs. Some of you might know that book. It's written early on. It's a, it's a romance novel. It's a, a love letter really to his wife, right? And guys, if you read that book, it gets a little dicey. It mentions some things you'd be surprised. In fact, his wife, like the Commodore saying, she's a brick house. <laughs> it gets into that, right? He talks about his love for his wife and his wife's love for him, about being intimate in the bedroom. It gets into there, man. You watch stuff today. The word of God is like that. And Solomon is talking about this romance with his wife. Yet we know that he struggled with women because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So, <laughs> so he, I don't know what he learned, but we know these were his demise because these unbelieving wives later he married would draw him away from the Lord. We read that in 1 Chronicles 28, 9 in Kings. In fact, chapter 2, we'll get into, we'll speak about the issues of pleasure of women in chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. As he's trying to pursue for pleasure and relationships as a purpose and meaning for life. He wrote the book of Proverbs, the wisdom book we know written during the middle years, right? He, he learned some lessons. He, he began to develop some rules for life. So he had a romance book, he had a rule book, in a sense, rules for life, wisdom for life. In fact, we know that in 1 Kings, the Lord comes to Solomon, and if you want anything, ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he says, hey, my dad, he, he ruled the kingdom, and now I'm going to rule the kingdom. Give, I need wisdom. And the Lord was so blessed by what he requested that God gave him wisdom, but he not only gave him wisdom, he also gave him wealth, he gave him fame, he gave everything he needed. And so God blessed him with wisdom. And out of that wisdom, he, we read the, the book of Proverbs and the wisdom that comes from the wisdom books. In fact, it says in 1 Kings 4, 29 to 33, Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all men in the East and, and the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. He spoke of trees. He spoke of animals, of birds, of creepy things, and of fish. This guy was a Renaissance man. He knew a little bit about everything. You're going to see that in the scriptures later on as we continue the journey. 
Proverbs were wisdom to, to live by. That tells me that he was an educated man. You know, you remember that game, who wants to be a millionaire and you had three options? One of them was to call a friend. Solomon would be the guy you would call. I call Solomon. He some answers. He would be the dude you call, right? But he could speak about life issues as much as he could speak about spiritual issues because he was the son of David, right? Solomon loved his dad. In fact, 1 Kings 3.3 says, Solomon loved the Lord walking in statues of his father, David. Can you imagine the relationship between Solomon and David? David is the one who slew David and Goliath. Can you imagine sitting, eating some pita bread and hummus? It sounds good right now. And he's telling, because let me tell you about the David and Goliath story. Can, can you imagine the stories that he's pouring into his son Solomon as he sat under the feet of his, day, of his father David and the spiritual things that were pouring in? You only have to read 1 Kings chapter 2 at his deathbed. He gives words to Solomon about how he is to obey God's command and, and live in his word. And he's passing on these things that David know to be true because why? David was a man after God's own heart. And he's pouring his heart into his son. That gives us a picture of us pouring our heart into our own children. But I know you pray because some have been prodigals out there. Solomon was a prodigal. He had his issues, right? But then he, at the end of his life, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a reflective book. So a romance book, a rule book, and a reflective book. This is, it's at his twilight years, right? Near the end of his life. And so he's preaching from this experience. He's writing at the end of his life. Some believe this book was written right about 931 to 935 BC. And in this book, we see some of his agnosticism. He's not too sure what he believes, his pessimism, and some of his writing. His pursuit of meaning as he is grasping the wind and reflects on some regrets he made, some just poor decisions he made. He writes with some wounds and scars from his backsliding. In fact, the Old Testament scholar Sandra Richter said this, described the author of Ecclesiastes as a man who had had it all, but discovered that having it all nearly destroyed him. We see that in the book. So that's the words of Solomon. I want to close with this, the introduction to the preacher's purpose in Ecclesiastes 1-2. Verse 2. Spoil alert. You know what spoil alert is? right? You know the guy who tells you the end of the story before it ends, right? That guy when you're watching a movie and tells you, oh, this is the end. You're like, what? Right? I love watching football. You know that. I played football and stuff. And you guys know I, I love the Chargers. I have a codependent relationship. Okay. And so every Sunday when they play, I record the game so I can go after and watch the game. So I don't want anybody to tell me the score. But people in the church, the good-hearted people in the church. <laughs> Pastor Pete, the Chargers are winning or they're losing, and they tell me, go, what are you doing? Spoil alert. You already give me the results. Solomon opens up his sermon with the end in mind. He's telling you the end before he even gets into the book because now he's going to exegete all that he gives. He's giving you his conclusion, and he's going to exegete it in the rest of the book. He's going to tell you how he came to that conclusion, how he came to the conclusions of, of life. Here. That's why he says here, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He starts with the 
and in mine. In fact, the, the word vanity used 33 times in 29 verses. It is found in every chapter except chapter 10. This phrase bookends the book. It starts at the beginning and it ends with the same thing with vanity. I think if Solomon uses this word so much, we have to pay attention to it, right? You have to pay attention to the word. As we're going to go through this book, I want you to go home this week and read the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to take notes on repetitive words, words that he repeats, because that's going to give you clue to what he's trying to get across to you, right? He uses the word vanity 33 times. He uses the word God 42 times. The word under the sun, he uses 124 times. Fear God 12 times, good 20 times. His purpose is to leave us good news when it's all said and done. We're going to start verse 3 next week, talking about how we profit under the sun. They say hindsight is 2020. Psalm is looking in the rearview mirror to bring about some truths he discovered. And so he speaks in this Hebraic rhythm, this Hebraic expression, vanities of vanities, all is vanities. It's the same rhythm we often find in the Old Testament when we hear, Lord of lords, king of kings, holy of holies. There's a rhythm to some of the author's writings, and he has that rhythm here. Why? Because he's trying to draw attention to the listener. He's trying to draw attention to the, the reader. If, you had, if Solomon had a life verse, this was his life verse. He's known for saying, this verse. Even unbelievers can quote this verse. People who don't follow God can quote this verse, right? Solomon begins his message in the deep end of the pool. He jumps all in, right? He jumps all in. He says, I'm going to go deep right away. It's all vanity. Let's talk about what that means, all vanity, right? Because Solomon did go into some dark places. Maybe you feel like you're in some dark places or you've gone some dark places, but there's hope. There's hope because Solomon was in some dark places in his life and God brought him to the light. Solomon describes his vanity as absolute, absolute fertility. All is vanity. All is meaningless. All is emptiness is what that means. But then the preacher reminds us of our existence. The word vanity is the Hebrew word havel. It has several meanings. It's, it's hard to grasp. It's like a grease pig. You're trying to get a grasp of it, but you can't. But the core of meaning of vanity is the word breath or vapor. It's like a, a puff of smoke from a campfire, or a cloud of steam from a mouth of a brisk morning. It's elusive, lasting for only a moment. In fact, the word is used to describe the number of our days. Our lifespan and light of eternity is only a vapor. Psalms 39.5. My entire lifetime is, is just a moment to you, at best, each of us, but a breath. Job described his life in chapter 7, verse 16, for my death are but a breath, havel, a vapor. James 4, 14, for what is your life, even if a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Guys, the point that the author is making in some ways is saying this, we are only here for a short time, right? Psalm 90, verse 10 says, he sums it up, 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80, but even the best years are filled with pain and trouble, and soon they disappear and we fly away. Like a candle blown out. Life is a puff of smoke. You see it and it disappears. 
The idea is that we're born, we live, we die. It all happens so quickly. Life is short. So how do we find meaning in this world, in this life that's such a vapor and short? You know, we're getting old quickly as time flies by, right? Nothing seems to, to last. That's why Proverbs 31, 30 says this, charm is deceitful, beauty is passing. That's Havel, that's a vapor, it's a mist, it's a smoke. Joan Collins, the famous actress, said this, the problem with beauty is that it's like being born rich and then becoming poor. <laughs> and so what the preacher is doing here is the preacher is sums of life without, he, the preacher sums of life without God is vanity, right? See, apart from God, we can lose our identity and our purpose. Come on. We try to find purpose in what we do, but not who we are our identity. If I ask you, who are you? You might say, I'm a teacher. I'm a mother. You're finding, see, you find your identity in what you do, but that wasn't the question you, I asked. I didn't ask what you do. I asked who you are. And some of us find our identity in what we do and not who we are. And that's our struggle. And so Solomon is writing here, I want you to understand what you're created for. I want to understand who you are, right? What are you created for? To take pleasure in God. You're created to take pleasure, to taste and find that he's good. Because the purpose of our life is to, to glorify God. We're to be like King Jehoshaphat. His heart took delight in the ways of the Lord, 2 Chronicles 17.6. See, the book of Ecclesiastes is about life and how we're not to waste it. And at the core, we were created to worship. We are created to worship. And that's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has put eternity in their hearts. See, there's a vacuum. There's something here that only God can fill. But what Solomon did is he tried to fill it in this emptiness. He tried to fill it with everything except God. That's why he called it vanity. And that's what the world's doing. They're trying to live a life without God. And they're filling it with other things. They do the same thing the church does, but without God. They have fellowship. They go to parties. They go to bars. They go to clubs. They, they want community. They, that, God created that from the very beginning. But we're trying to find meaning and purpose without God. And that's why he calls it meaningless and empty and vanity. We are called to, to worship him. We must have a relationship with the one who created us. God must have the rightful place before us because we're to fear God for that is the beginning of wisdom. Let me ask you this. If in, the gut, if in your own gut you're saying there has to be more to this world, C.S. Lewis, the famous writer, had the same feeling. God, there's got to be more than this. And he discovered, if I'm not satisfied in this world, Maybe I'm not created for this world. I'm created for another world. And he came to that conclusion. And that's how he came to faith. That God didn't create. We're journeying on this world. We're passing through this world. But we're not here for eternity. We have another world that he's made for us. That we're known as citizens of heaven. By faith. Prepared for us. Maybe. It, maybe your purpose and your meaning can't be found on this side of heaven. That's why you two sang a song, I haven't found what I'm looking for. 
For some of you are singing the same blue song and maybe you're looking in the wrong places. That's why Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasures forevermore. See, what Solomon doing here, the preacher's doing, he's looking for significance. We find significance in building our house on the rock and not on the sand. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When we glorify him, we are most satisfied in him. See, our satisfaction and significance comes when our lives are Christ-centered and gospel-centered. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the completeness. He's filling you up with that living water. He's overflowing you in the presence of his presence. He's getting to the meaning. And maybe there's some things he has to uproot. The plant you rooted and rooted and go deeper. As I close this morning, I want to leave you with this story. It's a true story. A man had an old Model T Ford, and he had it stored in his garage, and he decided to bring it out and drive it down the street. And as he was driving down the street, it sputtered and it stopped. <coughs> Not being a mechanical man, he didn't know what to do. When all of a sudden a rich man came by and stopped and asked if he needed help. And he said, oh, yeah, I appreciate that. And he got out of the car, opened up the hood, made an adjustment to the carburetor, set the spark lever to the exact position, cranked that thing, and it came back to life. The owner of the car said with appreciation, sir, I'd like to just thank you. What's your name? And the man said, my name is Henry Ford. Henry Ford, the maker of the Model T Ford, no wonder you can fix it. You get the message? We were made for him, and we were made by him. We are created for his good pleasure. He can fix us. The Christ-centered life is the good life, the godly life, and the godly life is the good life. And that's, that's where Solomon is going with his story. That's where Solomon is going with this sermon. The gospel is you got to hear the bad news before you hear the good news, or you don't value the good news. And so that's the story of Solomon. That's where we're going to get into starting next week. We're going to get into his kind of the treadmill of life of going in circles, and it seems like a routine, and we don't find it, but he's going to address some of those issues. Look about labor. So I leave you with these four thoughts this morning. The preacher reminds us that life can be meaningless without God. He's reminding us. I just want to throw this thought in your head. The preacher reminds us that life is short. We need to be wise. Number three, the preacher reminds us that we can discover God in the midst of our own darkness. We can discover God. And the preacher reminds us that we are created to glorify God with our own lives. Man, I'm excited about jumping in this book. This book's going to be meaty. And I think it's going to be transformational for some of you guys as we study this man's life, as we study his biography, as we study his story. Because I think 
That's how God works. He takes us from the darkness and puts us in the light. He's loving and patient because he's merciful. His kindness leads us to repentance. That's the work of God. And as we journey, I want to encourage you to this week to go read the book. You may not fully understand it, just read it. It'll all come. The puzzles will all come together. The pieces will all fit as we journey through this book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your love and your blessings. Father, we pray this morning your hand upon your people this morning. And I'm asking this morning, Lord, that if there's some here today that are just struggling, they feel like they're in the dark, they feel like they can't get out of that, or some here today just asking questions about life and purpose, and maybe they hear this meaning because maybe they're on a journey and seeking how to make things better, or life better, or more meaningful. But I pray that the words that I've shared this morning might just be an encouragement to them. Because your word is the purpose of edifying the people or building up the people. And so I'm praying this morning your hand upon the hearers of your word. Your word says this, that there's a blessing in the hearing of your word. So there's a blessing coming for those in this room this morning because you promised that and you're a God that doesn't lie. You're a man of your word. And so I'm praying this morning a touch from above. You're here this morning and maybe you just need that, that touch from above. Just raise your hand. I just want to pray for you this morning. I see you. I see you. I see the hands raised. I see the hands raised. I see it. And Lord, I pray that here are your saints. Here are your people, Lord, this morning. Just like Solomon, they need a touch from above. Father, they need a comfort from God. They need the strength of your spirit. Lord, so I pray your presence upon them right now, Lord. Lord, I pray for a newing of their hearts and their minds, Lord. Father, help them not to grow weary in doing good, but in due season they'll reap a reward. So I'm praying your blessings upon them this morning as Lord, we come to the table. That, Father, you said, all those who are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Learn of me. And so I pray that they would take those worries, they take those anxieties, they take those things that they're facing, Lord, today, and they just lay them at your feet. You'll take them. You'll take them. Cast them at, at his feet that God would refresh you. We thank you, we praise you, and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, the Lord's table, this is one of the sacraments. We taught on this, sacraments of the table and baptism. We celebrated baptisms last week and able to baptize over 16 people last week in the bay. I said some of them we had to hold down a little longer than others. You know what I mean? But I want us to be reminded that this, the bread and the wine is to be remembered the work of God and what he's done for us. We sang a song this morning about the rugged cross. We sang a song about the debt that he paid. He sang a song about how we were here, but now we are here. And we all have our own journey. And he brings the disciples to a table after he's been journeying with them for three and a half years. And he said, let me tell you about this work that I'm about to do in the next 24 hours as it is the Passover. That this bread, this bread is symbolic of my body. 
It's going to be broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. And that I'm going to go and suffer because by his stripes we are healed. And he took on the scourging and the beating and the ridicule because he loved us. Because there had to be a payment for the wages of sin, for the wages of sin is death. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to cover the debt. I'm going to cover your debt, the debt you could never cover. I'm going to pay it. That's how much I love you. And so my body is broken, so let's partake of the bread. The juice is symbolic of his blood. For without the shedding of blood, there cannot be the remissions of sin. Means that it's the cover-up, the atonement, right? That the things we're going to do this week, because we're all going to all fall short of the glory of God, because nobody's perfect here, right? God's going to atone for it at the cross. He's already atoned for it at the cross. He's covered up. He's passed over it because of what Jesus did, because there's, there had to be shedding of blood because there's life in the blood. That's what we read about in Leviticus 17. Without life, we all, that's why people bleed to death, because there's life in the blood. But he shed his blood, he lost his blood, so that we can be saved by his blood and have life in his blood. That's the blessed blood. That's the purest form of blood that we have to cover us. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I've done in the shedding of the blood. It's a demonstration of how much I love you. Let's partake. Father, heaven, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your goodness and mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you for the worship, the ministry of the word, the ministry of communion. And I pray your blessings upon your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us or learn more at our website, newvision.city. See you next time.